One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we look at updates from the front lines, analyse the leak of confidential documents in the US, and look at the latest economic numbers coming out of Ukraine. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Thursday, the 13th of April, one year and 48 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today, I'm joined by our associate editor, Dominic Nichols, our assistant comment editor, Francis Sternley, and senior technology reporter, Gareth Caulfield. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine. Yeah, hi, David. Hi, everybody. So uh, we're going to talk about the Pentagon leaks shortly, but let's just zoom out for a moment, get back to the the battlefield. So what's been happening there? Well, The day before yesterday, this is going by the Ukrainian MOD, the latest announcement from them. So a number of S-300 missiles. Now, these are air defense missiles, but being used in the the ground-to-ground or air-to-ground role. So um, not as accurate as they would otherwise be if they're in their primary role. Not that Russia seems to care too much about accuracy, but but we should be aware that this is what they are now using. We think as they have a paucity of precision-guided munitions and once you use a nature of weaponry that is that is outside its normal mode, it's, it's going to be less reliable. So they're using S-300 air defense missiles. A number hit Kramatorsk. So this is about 30 k's northwest of Bakhmut in the Donbass. There were no reported casualties from that. But the Ukrainian MOD assessment went on to say that they, they're saying that Russia's main effort at the moment is about, if you can picture, about a 100-kilometer curve from Liman in the north of the Donbass kind of head south through Bakhmut, then southwest to Avdivka and Marienka axis. So about 100 k's in that, in that curve there. So Ukraine said 52 attacks were, uh, were well, attempted along that line on Tuesday. This is the most, most recent reporting that I've, I've seen. But interestingly, they say that the Avdivka-Marienka area, that's to the southwest of that little curve, southwest of Bakhmut, that's where the fiercest fighting is happening now. This sort of chimes with what we've been reporting hearing from Bakhmut that 
that Russia continues to grind on there seems to be seems to be west of the river. But actually, Ukraine is still fighting for Bakhmut. The the supply line to the west is still open, although under extreme pressure. And we're not entirely sure what the force makeup there is from Russia in Bakhmut. We heard that Wagner had been supported by the VDV, so Russian airborne forces from the regular army. So quite what's happening there, there seems to be a, a temporary truce, if you like, between Wagner and the and the regular army. But Bakhmut, the fighting continues, although, as I say, Ukraine MOD saying that Avdivka, Mariinka area to the southwest of Bakhmut is now the scene of the fiercest fighting. I mean, I don't don't get confused by the geography. Don't worry about the geography here. This is this is still a a very small part of the entire country. There have been no no offences of any real strength from Russia in the north around Kharkiv, Ukraine's second city, or further south around and Hezon. There has been shelling in the Sumy, that's to the north and the Kharkiv areas, but 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 to no no real effect and not sit not part of some kind of wider push by Russia. It's more harassment shelling. However, the, um, there has been this process of Russification has carried on. So when we, when we use the phrase Russification, this is, I'm, I'm looking at the, the Institute for the Study of War here, US-based think tank. They're saying, so Russification, they're, they're saying is the deliberate destruction of Ukrainian identity through a multitude of military, social, economic, legal, bureaucratic and administrative lines of effort, if you like. So that, that effort has continued and Ukrainian MOD are saying that a number of hospital employees in the in the medical facility in Shenizhny, which is about 50 k's east of Donetsk, they have been dismissed because they refuse to take Russian passports. So this slow campaign of Russification carries on. The ISW is saying that this this is um, this type of activity, assimilating, just wipe, attempting to wipe out Ukrainian identity is very evident in Ukraine, obviously, but it also empowers and amplifies what they say are overtly nationalist voices and ideologies in Russia itself. And they're saying that this is expressed through the intense xenophobia that we see directed both at Ukraine and the Ukrainian identity, but also, interestingly, at domestic minorities within Russia. So, yeah, we see these things and, and you know, you could, you could write it off as the so-called Donetsk People's Republic just doing what, what they think they should do to, to keep currying favour with Putin. But actually, it is all part of a systemic effort to wipe out Ukrainian identity. I'm just going to touch briefly on the um, on the, the latest from the, the leaked documents. We're going to talk more in depth shortly. But just the latest latest bit of news there is that the so reporting for the New York Times is saying that, that one of the leaks that's just come out of this, this trove says that, that the FSB, that's Russia's federal security service, they've accused the Russian MOD of obfuscating, their words, obfuscating Russian casualties in Ukraine. So one document that the New York Times says was dated February the 28th says that the FSB have claimed that the official death toll did not include those dead and wounded from the Russian National Guard, the Wagner Group or fighters loyal to Ramzan Kadyrov, the Chechen warlord, who we haven't seen an awful lot of lately. I've been trying to track down where he is and what he's doing, but he's been very quiet. Don't don't think we've ignored that. We are, we are looking for him, but he's been very quiet of late. However, the FSB went on and said that this that their their view, this, this finding highlighted what they say is the continuing reluctance of military officials to convey bad news up the chain of command, unquote. I think we would agree with that. It's rare to hear a, a, a Russian organ such as one of the intelligence agencies say that now they were complaining the document they were referring to said that the 
the the number of or sorry they the FSB are saying that the number of casualties they think is about 110,000 as of late February. So casualties are dead, wounded, missing, and prisoners of war. But they are complaining that the most recent public death toll, which was actually issued back in September last year by Sergei Shoigu, Russia's defence minister, said only that ju- just under 6,000 Russian soldiers had been killed since the war began. So you know, it said 5,937, call it 6,000 for cash. I mean, it's, it's irrelevant. It's a fantasy figure, so it doesn't matter. If that's dead, you could probably triple that for the wounded. So, you know, another 18,000. going to have to take my shoes off here. But you're talking the low 20,000s, according to the Russian MOD, which is is absolutely not what what any respectable outlet is saying. I think the last estimate from Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs in the US, was saying 100,000 or 120,000 casualties, I think, 1,000 casualties, I think, which includes, as I say, dead, wounded, missing and, and prisoners of war. So interesting that there's a there's a there's a obviously this wasn't open this was on one of these documents that were leaked but suggesting that the fsb and the russian mod are never been never been good fellow but good bedfellows but there there is still a continuing spat there over um over numbers i'll take a little pause thanks very much dom francis can i come to you just for some comment on these on these pentagon confidential leaks Thanks, David. I just wanted to address something that some listeners have contacted us about, which is the idea that these leaks may in some way be a deception operation conducted by the United States and Ukraine. Now, as a historian and as someone who's seen up close the chaos of politics and governance, I'm always more inclined to believe in cock-up over conspiracy, although it's not inconceivable that these leaks are in some way a deception operation by the US and Ukraine. History is, of course, littered with numerous examples of ingenious operations designed to mislead the enemy, perhaps most famously Operation Mincemeat, the World War II deception operation disguising the Allied invasion of Sicily in 1943. Now, to uh, to those listeners who aren't familiar, that the story of that is that British intelligence obtained the body of a homeless man who died from eating rat poison. They dressed him up as an officer of the Royal Marines and then dumped his body in the sea with correspondence between two British generals suggesting that the Allies planned to invade Greece and Sardinia with Sicily as merely a, a feint. And this was then picked up by... Uh, the Spanish, they found the body who'd fed this intelligence to the Germans and Hitler believed it. And German reinforcements were then shifted to Greece and Sardinia before and during the invasion of Sicily, whereas Sicily received none. There's a, another famous deception operation from the war, uh, Operation Fortitude. And it was when the sort of the overarching deception strategy during the build up to the Normandy landings in 1944 involved the creation of certain uh, phantom field armies, which threatened Norway and Calais. And this false information from a double agent supplied to the Germans meant that they came to believe that the main attack from Normandy would, would or, or it, it, it was actually from Normandy, became, would come via Calais. So they kept then large forces there, uh, both before and even after the invasion. And quite amusingly, the double agent, I believe, who ha- has the distinction of receiving military decorations from both Britain, I think he got the Order of the British Empire, and also an Iron Cross from Germany, even though, of course, he was working for us. But all that said, uh, the fact that the individual concerned seems to have been identified. The Washington Post, they don't name the individual, but they've talked to people who are involved in the Discord server, which I know Gareth is going to talk about in a bit, and say that they've got a sense of who this might be. That would suggest that this probably isn't one of these operations. Although, interestingly, it will still lead to Russia having to adapt their strategy in case it is some kind of 
deliberate uh, deceit. Uh, knowing the Russian paranoia, I imagine there'll be many in the intelligence community who believe this is some sort of ruse from the West. So, you know, there's a lot of evidence that this is genuine, that there's real cause for some concern of the analysis, although there are a lot of caveats to throw in there, as we've discussed this week. But, uh it could. It's not inconceivable. And I thought I would just flag some historical comparisons as well. But I know that Gareth and, and Dom will also have some further thoughts on this. Thank you, Francis. Well, can we just bring in Dom at this moment just for a quick comment and then we'll go to Gareth Caulfield? Yeah, so just just for wider context, so we're all on the same page. I mean, this is the, the, the dump of, over some number of weeks, of, of, of hundreds of, of documents, protectively marked documents from the US by an individual that started off with the just the text of the documents being typed out and then subsequently morphed into photographs of, of the actual pages that this individual had managed to had managed to get hold of. Gareth will be able to speak to us in a moment about the, the exact the, the social media routes that they that they took to get these things out, but it went from a very small community on the Discord, largely gaming site, and then sort of broke out of there and, and that's how it, it became known. But it seems to have been going on for, for a number of weeks before it came before it came to um, the attention of the US authorities. That's that's the line. And I do happen to agree with Francis that it is that is it's cock up, not conspiracy. However, you know, we do have to address this. Okay. This if you wanted to do a major intelligence function here ahead of some counteroffensive, you'd need to be big, you need to be bold, you need to put a lot of thought into it. So we can't discount it. I don't think we're we're totally there yet. But we should we should discuss it. And I'm I'm minded to recall Churchill's words about the truth. He said, the truth is so precious, it has to be attended to by a bodyguard of lies. Okay, so we're in murky territory here, and we shouldn't spin ourselves out of control. But it is worth it is worth a discussion here. So now the big thing that came out of these leaks, for me, the biggest the biggest area was the acknowledgement by the US supposed alleged acknowledgement by the US that Ukraine's air defense is is weak in terms of quantity. And on the current current rates of use, they'd be out of missiles, some by the end of March and, and others by sort of April and May. So, you know, what would that mean if, if Russia got hold of that? They think, hooray, here we go. We can we can achieve local air superiority or we can we can do something with the Air Force that's been largely absent so far. Now, maybe that's exactly what you want them to think if you're if you're a Ukrainian. So so there's a possibility here that actually the best way to to get a message across that you would want is you've got to spend a bit of equity. You've got to burn a few equities. There was a, there was a line in these leaks about South Korea that you know, the US had been listening to South Korea, conversations at senior policymaker level. They were talking about supporting Ukraine by supplying weapons through Poland, for example. I mean, these are very sensitive matters that they're discussing and they really shouldn't be in the public domain. But it's not, you know, it's not the end of the world. If, if that's, uh, you know, that's not going to really damage South Korea, I wouldn't, I wouldn't imagine. So perhaps, perhaps with a very small P, because I'm, I'm, I'm not totally sold on this, but perhaps the US and Ukraine authorities have decided to, to hide that bit of gold, to hide the truth with a, with a bodyguard of lies. So if the truth is that they want Russia to think that Ukrainian air defense is weak, yeah, have a bodyguard of lies around it. Give away a little bit of the gold. Hide, hide the real stuff. Or sorry, hide your deception amongst the real stuff. Hide, hide it in the gold. And I think that you know, possibly get out. Well, if you did another Snowden two, Edward Snowden, if there's a sudden sudden dump and some some hitherto unknown individual stands up and goes, oh, I, I disagree with this all along. I think that'd be a bit too obvious. So. You know, this might be a clever way of getting some information out, either through a witting or or unwitting 
member of a of a of a chat room uh, again Gareth's going to be the authority here but then finally I did, my final point is that that both sides here are looking at each other clearly you, Russia and Ukraine expecting this this counteroffensive how are you going to plan for that how are you going to plan for their response to that how are you going to plan for your response to their response blah 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 blah, blah. that's what military staffs do and intelligence staffs do all the time and I just wonder if this has introduced just a slight element of chaos, a slight element of doubt, of discord, if you like, no pun intended. Actually, no pun intended. You know, into this into this mix, because there will be there will be people in very senior levels in Moscow, I have no doubt right now, saying, Yeah, this is all this is all true, mm, but what if it isn't? What does that mean? And there'll be others saying, No, 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 it's all a load of hogwash. Hmm, but what if it's true? And just introducing that element of doubt just introducing that that requirement for the other side to think another time think check your facts again go back to your sources it all takes up staff time it all diverts them from what they would otherwise be doing which is all very very helpful in advance of any anticipated counteroffensive i i put that out there for discussion i'm not totally sold on it but equally you know we shouldn't discount it and we do need to discuss these things well, thank you very much, Dom and Francis, for your thoughts there. Gareth Caulfield, our senior technology reporter, can we come to you? This is obviously a huge subject. Where has your reporting led you? The leaks themselves and their origins and their journey from the classified marking world of US intelligence to a chat app used by internet gamers is really quite a fascinating one. And I think the earliest work on that was done by Bellingcat, the well-known investigative news website, And what they figured out was that these documents have been circulating on Discord, and I'll I'll talk in a moment about exactly what Discord is, as as, uh, some some of our listeners may not be fully familiar. But they seem to to have gone from the US sort of intelligence environment, if you can put it that way, onto this Chat for Gamers app via one particular individual who it seems, from what we've got in the public domain so far, was trying to impress his online friends by showing them you know, the, the nature of the information he had access to through work and sort of trying to stimulate discussion and maybe a bit of sort of young male bravado by saying, look at what I've got, isn't this amazing? You know, you're seeing the unvarnished truth here. Look at me, look at what I can g- give to you people. And it's, and it's really quite eyebrow-raising. I mean, now Dom's already talked about the, the background to this, where there's a potential, and indeed Francis has as well, you know, is there some sort of double cross double bluff type operation to to leak a few interesting snippets closed in a in a bed of lies um the public reporting so far is is running on the theory that this is literally just a a young i mean i think it's actually the washington post has, uh, has spoken to some of the internet mates but they they describe the the individual at the center of all of these leaks as quote a young, charismatic gun enthusiast who shared highly classified documents with a group of far-flung acquaintances searching for companionship amid the isolation of the pandemic. What that means is, there was a, a, now, just to sort of go back on myself slightly there, Discord. First of all, what is Discord? If you understand what Discord is, then the, the sort of eyebrow-raising, oh-my-goodness nature of these leaks really sort of becomes much clearer. Now, Discord is an online chat app for gamers. It's It's very much a sort of... Um, live text medium. You can do you know, video game streaming. You can stream your screen through that. You can have audio conversations with your friends. You can share GIFs, images, files, and what have you. And, and I say gamers. It's very much aimed at gamers. You know, if you want to stream a game to your mates, you want to have a little sort of private chat space. Not dissimilar from, I guess, a WhatsApp group or something like that, if you're familiar with, with all the sort of modern messaging technologies. Now, Discord is very widely used, especially on the younger segments of the population. 
And the idea that classified documents, protectively marked documents from the security environment, are turning up on Discord is is absolutely stunning. Mostly because a lot of people in the wider world are saying, you know, what on earth is Discord? How have these got on there? And partly because also it's Discord. It's a thing for gamers. It's a, it's a sort of youngish people go to hang out there virtually with their mates. This is on a place where you would ever expect intelligence documents to appear, much less be circulating around. But what seems to have happened is that this this chap who, who apparently calls himself OG, OG in youth slang, original gangster, the sort of, you know, the, the big I am, the, the tribal leader, if you will, sort of that sort of scent is what we convey with letters OG here. Anyway, our chap OG appears, so it's suggested, to have been working at a US government facility with a security clearance. And amid the online isolation of the pandemic and all of that, uh, as, a, as a sort of been trying to show off to his online mates and saying like, oh yes, I know what's really going on here. Oh, do you see that incident in the news the other day? Well, here's what we really know, sort of thing. And the suggestions from the public reporting so far is that as time went on, his his group of sort of twenty or so internet friends from all over the world, not just you know the US or Western countries, but allegedly there were people who may have come from Ukraine and from Russia as well in his twenty strong private Discord server. These these folk apparently grew a bit sort of a bit bored. Maybe bit, they found him a bit repetitive. At which point he went from giving them sort of written summaries of these intelligence documents to providing them with photos of the originals, and that's that's quite eye catching because of course the theory goes is that the the protective marking scheme and the security arrangements around these documents are explicitly supposed to prevent people doing things like printing copies, taking them home, taking photographs of them, and uploading them onto the internet. Now, Discord themselves have issued a statement today which says that they are cooperating, actively cooperating with US law enforcement in tracking down OG uh, and his real-world identity. And I speculate that he, uh, he may be helping the police with their inquiries in a, in a very short space of time. But one of the things that, that the, uh, the general intelligence communities tend to do with all these kind of online chat platforms is they sort of proactively scan. You know, they occasionally sort of say, well, you know, we just have a look and see what's out there, what's publicly accessible, make sure that nothing that we don't want to be out there, nothing originating from within our files has got there. And one of the th- working theories about how the um, how these documents were able to circulate for so long, the most I mean, they, they seem to be around for a few months now. One of the theories about well, how they were circulating for so long is because this chap was taking photographs of them as opposed to uploading digital originals or digi- fully digitalized copies is that they're able to evade the usual sort of online scanning that the agencies do. So you know, usually you upload a file that has a particular fingerprint or signature, and you can easily run a check to you know, see if anything matches that signature. But photographs of what are described in the reporting as, as crumpled pages or with slightly off-center or clutter in the background sort of thing tends to upset that signature-based scanning process. So the working theory is that these these leaked documents were able to circulate on Discord for so long precisely because they just happened to be in a format which evaded the, the normal sort of fingerprint-based scanning stuff. Um, so that's, that, I think, is is quite quite the eyebrow-raising point, really. And as, as Dom sort of hinted at already, these have been in circulation for quite a while. The most recent ones out of the, I think it was 300-odd, which are rumoured to be out there, uh, were dated early or mid-March. So this is fairly, you know, fairly up to the minute as, as leaked documents go. And there are comparisons to be made, I suppose, with the Snowden leaks. But the motivation also, I mean, maybe we go on to talk about that, but the motivation of OG, I think, is quite different from, from the, what you might call the ideological leak, as we've seen in the past. 
whereas folk like Edward Snowden, who the NSA contractor who famously leaked lots of documents and said he was opposed to what the agency was doing all the way back in 2013. What OG seems to be doing is literally, as far as we know, showing off to his online mates, which is quite a different sort of threat profile, to use a cybersecurity lingo here, to you know the sort of the the, the, um, the this person imagining himself as the brave white knight crusading to expose wrongdoing. No, in this case, it looks so far like OG is simply saying, "Hey, look what I've got, guys! Isn't this great?" So yeah, the the, the p- tracing the path of these leaks through Discord and then through the wide world of the internet. I think we've already hinted at the Russians having apparently obtained copies and not very subtly altered some numbers in them, suggests that. You know, casualties taken in Russia were much lower than the, the intelligence estimates apparently told us, and all that sort of thing. That's fascinating, Gareth. Thank you. We'll come back to you. Dom, do you want to just jump in there? You had some interesting inf- information about how the United Kingdom treats states treats secrets. Well, yeah, I was just going to add I mean, a, a very simple security measure that is employed in, in the UK is that secret and above documents are printed on pink paper because they have a separate printer which hopefully logs everybody who requests a print so you know anyone who just late late at night tries to print off a load of stuff to uh, to supplement the pension that's going to be that's going to register i mean this is fairly low level stuff is it, it, it can be circumvented i mean <laughs> by, by replacing the pink paper with something else for starters but you know it, it's it's just another hurdle to get around but also pink paper if you're on a certain uh, level or in certain departments and offices where you are not handling secret information, then if there's any pink pink paper in there, then questions should be should be raised. Or if you're walking around carrying this stuff and it's not correctly secured because you shouldn't just be walking around in, in certain places with uh, with secret documents, then so these are all very very low level stuff. But you know, as with any system, it's a bit like a, the, the 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 cheese, the, the the holes through a cheese. Eventually, the, they will all line up, and and a mistake will happen. Same with aviation security, but you know, I digress there. But you know, eventually something's going to go wrong. But these simple measures might be the, the the thing that that breaks the link on the way to a to an either an accident or a or a big intelligence malfunction, as as here. So, I mean, I'm not sure that would have necessarily worked in this case because clearly well i say clearly we don't really know but it, look, it looks as if this guy has, has grabbed what he's able to to grab and then and then photographed what he can but um yeah there are some very very low level procedures that, that should be in place starting with vetting as well to vetting of the individuals to see if they are sufficiently i don't know or if they are have any sort of narcissistic bent to, to be honest that they might want to put themselves in a position of, of leadership and showing off to their mates if anyone anybody who who gets off on the whole kind of, I've got a secret, you don't know. Oh, go on then, tell us. Oh, all right then. That's not healthy in a, in, a, in a security establishment. So there's all these all these procedures that are in place. But quite frankly, if if somebody is motivated enough to do these kind of things, then then you, you know you've got to be careful and active to to catch them. And it seems that this one this one's got through the net. All of which does suggest that they are they are genuine. I, I agree with Gareth that this guy seems motivated by his his personal standing. Which suggests that the information is is accurate, but because I just come back to it, because it was out there for so long, we how do we know that the the U.S. authorities didn't didn't pick up on this, and then fighting their initial urge to say right, shut the whole thing down right now? Maybe somebody said, hang on a second, hang on, hang on, hang on. How do we turn this to our advantage? Right, here's a plan. Why don't we let it run and feed in a bit of information? So I don't know. I don't know. I'm speculating, open for discussion. But yeah, I don't think we've certainly not heard the end of this issue yet. I think we've probably seen the end of the leaks because whoever OG is, and I'll, I'll look to our own 
in-house OG Francis Durnley to, uh, to to opine more widely on this. But I would have thought that the the whole system now would be be looking for this uh, this person, and and he or she is 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 going very quiet. Thank you very much for that. Dom, yeah, it's, I mean, it's clear from everything you're saying that we're very much in the middle of this story, Gareth. From what you're saying, you, you know, we're in the we're in the process. We're not looking back at something and you know explaining how how we did it. We're, we're, we're in the middle of trying to understand what's happened and speculate and 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 analyze. Gareth, what happens now? Like, where what will you be looking at now? Where where, where does this story go? And then, I guess, I guess, what sort of a, fa- a fairly simple question is what what if they find this? If they find OG, what's going to happen? What's going to happen to OG? Well. I think I've used the phrase helping the police with their inquiries. I suspect, as, as Dom hints, one of the the first things that the authorities will be interested in doing is establishing who he is, how he obtained these documents and was able to photograph them, and more importantly, where else has he shared them. We know from the public reporting that these appeared on OG's private Discord server, but what we also know is that they began to spread, as inevitably some of his online friends realised that all this protectively marked material is actually very interesting to a much wider audience. It is not the sort of thing that you normally find in the pump domain for fairly obvious reasons. So OG's, OG, I suspect, um, will be assisting with that. He may also be assisting the authorities to shed light on exactly who his internet friends are. Now, we've already talked about the, um, you know, the nature of who else knows about this. There are rumours that some of his friends on Discord may have been drawn from countries which are not favourable to the West. I mean, we've heard speculation about there being a potential Russian member, but we also know that the documents themselves have spread much wider. I mean, you know, there are there are several news outlets, including The Telegraph, now reporting on these, on the contents of them, or the alleged contents of them, which is going to cause, I think, a few problems for OG in terms of explaining to his bosses uh, exactly why he thought it was a a really good idea to show off to his internet friends by posting copies of them on his Discord server. Now, one of the things, too, which is is probably from the tech point of view about Discord, is that the way it handles file sharing, stick with me here, the way it handles file sharing is that all the files are uploaded to Discord servers. Now, if you know either the direct web link to where that file is, or if you're an intelligence agency, you might perhaps know exactly how that URL is generated, then you can scan Discord, as I mentioned earlier, and you can, you, can, you can see what's being uploaded there. You can download copies of them automatically and just scan them or maybe have a, have a leaf through and see what they are. Now, the suspicion I, 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 I am working on here is that if the Western intelligence community has been able to start doing that now and identifying all these files. They may also be able to start identifying where else those files have cropped up online. So one of the next things I think we're going to see in this story is perhaps a bit of speculation or rumour about which other countries may have downloaded and, and acquired them. From the intelligence service point of view, I suspect that these are now effectively public domain, that they have, they have been lost control of, that their contents are now well known and out there. And that the best that the, the agencies can do is is possibly shed a, uh, throw a bit of shade on them, to use the phrase. So, yeah, I think in, su- in summary there, then, I think the next things we're going to see are OG helping the authorities with their inquiries. I think OG's real-world identity may soon become public knowledge. I suspect that we're also going to see some very interesting revelations coming out about the alleged contents of these documents. Uh, and I think actually Dom may or may not be, be talking about one particular incident which uh, appears to have light shed on it by them. But uh, with that, I'll go back to you, David. 
Well, thank you very much for that, Gareth. That was absolutely fascinating. We'll definitely bring you back soon. Francis Turnley, can I turn to you? What are the latest political updates that you've been looking at? Thanks, David. I was going to suggest that we start calling Dom the original gangster. He is the oldest amongst us, after all. But uh, subject for another day, there's a plethora of political stories today. I'm going to start with economics, because we hear that Ukraine's gross domestic product fell by 29.1% in 2022. That's according to the country's statistic agency. The government has said it's a result, unsurprisingly, of the Russian invasion, which led to a significant loss of Ukrainian territory and damage to industry. And they've also indicated the hardest hit sectors of the economy, the most significant drop being in construction at 67 percent. There's also been a decrease in the processing industry at 43 percent, energy 32 percent, the mining industry 32 percent, trade 30 percent and agriculture 28 percent, all extraordinarily high figures. And as we've reported in the past, Ukraine is receiving substantial economic support from Western countries in order to keep in the fight. And there's also long term planning as to rebuilding the country after the war. In that space, interestingly, yesterday, the World Bank said that it was ready to do its part in rebuilding Ukraine, but that international financial institutions can't shoulder the sums involved alone and that Western European countries would have to chip in. That's uh, directly from the World Bank president, David Malpass, and he was speaking at the spring meeting of the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank. And he made quite an interesting speech, actually. He was talking about how the World Bank had played a big role in rebuilding Europe's steel industry after the Second World War and could play a similar role in Ukraine, but then spoke about how, and this is a quote, the size is daunting. And he cited a recent estimate that it would cost $411 billion to rebuild the Ukrainian economy or 2.6 times what its expected 2022 gross domestic product would be. That number, which was calculated by the World Bank, the UN, European Commission and Ukraine itself, I think, was up sharply from an estimate of $349 billion released last September. So extraordinarily high figures here. And clearly this is going to be very much a, a figure that increases the longer that the war goes on. Interestingly, in this context, as part of this summit and this spring meeting, the UK Chancellor Jeremy Hunt has pledged to provide an additional $500 million in UK guaranteed loans for Ukraine, bringing the total amount pledged in support of the country up to a billion. That's what we're hearing from the Treasury today. So there is continued support in the economic sphere for Ukraine. But of course, the figures involved here are daunting, the kind that are so enormous that it will take decades for Ukraine to pay off loans, but also just generally for the cost of this to be fully appreciated by the global economy, such as the, the devastation that has tragically been wrought on the country. Just staying on the economic theme, interestingly, the Permanent Court of Arbitration in The Hague has just ordered Russia to pay Ukraine $5 billion in compensation for losses caused by Russia's seizure of Crimean assets during the annexation of the peninsula in 2014. Now, the significance of this is really not so much this particular case, but it, because it sets a key precedent. If Russia refuses to comply with this ruling, then Naftogaz, which is the sort of company involved here, has the right to use an enforcement mechanism in states which are part of the court's convention and have assets located within their borders seized. So a very interesting de development this. And it's really been a very significant month or so for uh, Hague bodies. The 
we, of course, remember the arrest warrant for Putin. And I said at the time that while some countries would not pay attention to the warrant in any meaningful sense, others, including those who perhaps have had stronger ties with, with Moscow, would have to quite think quite seriously how they were going to respond if Putin were to seek to visit. One country I referenced then was South Africa. And interestingly, there has been a development here. The uh, South African government has said that the arrest warrant, quote, is a spanner in the works ahead of its BRICS summit in August. Now, BRICS, B-R-I-C-S, is a bloc which brings together Brazil, Russia, India, China and South Africa. And uh, at this summit, Putin was expected to, we've well, certainly been invited, was expected to potentially attend that. But because the host nation is a member of the ICC, they would be expected to arrest Putin if he steps foot in the country. There have been previous incidents where South Africa have not done that, despite arrest warrants is ruled by the ICC of previous figures, as other countries have also done the same. So it doesn't mean they have to, but it does show the diplomatic difficulties here for countries that are trying to play off East and West together or be a sort of country in the middle, because Western countries won't look too kindly for them not doing this. And so there are consequences, and this is why the ICC ruling was so significant. Austria have also chipped in just on this theme. They've confirmed their position this week that Putin will be arrested if he sets foot on Austrian soil. Uh, Austria's Minister for the EU and Constitutional Affairs has told the German newspaper Tagesspiegel that Austria will comply with its obligations under international law and criminal law if he sets foot on Austrian soil and arrest must be made. So again, quite interesting developments there that countries are still talking about this and more crucially they're being asked about them but not only by diplomats but by journalists as well. It, it raises significant issues for Putin in the long term as to where he can safely travel and it puts a permanent stain on his reputation internationally or at least what was left of it. Just a few other interesting stories relating to sort of state suppression and prisoners of, of Russia. A Russian father who fled the country after he was jailed over an anti-war drawing, drawing his daughter did at school is believed to have been extradited back to Russia from Belarus. Now, this was a 54-year-old single father from a town south of Moscow. He fled house arrest in late March, I think, just before a Russian court handed him a two-year sentence for discrediting the Russian army. He was later detained in Belarus after he fled, but we understand that he has now been extradited back to Russia. Now, he first came to the authorities' attention last year after his daughter drew a picture at school showing missiles next to a Russian flag heading towards a woman and a child standing by a Ukrainian one. Her headmistress then contacted the police and this is how it became then a court case involving the father. Now the significance of this apart from being a tragic incident is it's yet another example of increasing cooperation between Belarus and Russia which of course is a cause for concern in, in various different spheres at the moment. Staying on this theme, there's been an update on the Wall Street Journal journalist Evan Guskovich. According to reports in the US, his arrest in Moscow was personally approved by Putin. Now, the Bloomberg, the ones who are reporting this, they're citing people familiar with the situation who've said the decision was referred to the Russian president directly. It was, the, of course, Mr. Guskovich was the first US reporter to be arrested on espionage charges since the Cold War. The Wall Street Journal has denied strongly the allegations of spying. And it isn't a huge surprise, I don't think, that Putin would have signed this off directly, given the inevitable political fallout. The, the judgment had to go to him. It is arguably yet further evidence of a deliberate strategy by him to trigger a diplomatic row, acquire a bargaining chip over the West, as well as uh, giving a warning to domestic journalists as well as foreign 
foreign journalists that that they are in danger or given the subjects the, the difficult subjects they report on Russia so uh, again a concerning development but one that I don't think comes as an enormous shock given what we've been talking about now for some weeks um, and just lastly, speaking of prisoners of the Russian state, Russia's most prominent opposition figure, someone we've touched on in the podcast many, many times, Alexei Navalny, is said to be suffering from a mystery illness in jail, which be, could be some kind of slow-acting poison. That's coming from his spokeswoman. Apparently, he's lost eight kilograms in weight in just over two weeks, and emergency services had to be called for him overnight on Friday at the penal colony where he's being held. The spokeswoman said, we do not exclude that at this time Alexei Navalny is being slowly poisoned, being killed slowly so that it attracts less attention. He is being held in a punishment cell with acute pain without medical help. Now, if this is true, this is not the first time that Mr. Navalny has survived an apparent attempt to poison him. That happened when he was on a flight in Siberia. It's believed to be a nerve agent involved. He was treated in Germany, then came back to Russia and was then arrested and We've covered, of course, uh, what happened after that and his imprisonment. He's a man, as we've talked about, not a, without controversy for his remarks about Crimea in the past. And I should say those are remarks he has since denounced, but many Ukrainians do not trust him as a leading opposition figure. Nonetheless, he remains, I think, a rallying cry for, for many who believe that a more liberal, democratic Russia is possible. He has certainly stood for that and so he remains a key figure and it wouldn't come as a surprise that Moscow wants him gone. He's still very vocal on Twitter in terms of this information is sort of fed to I think his lawyers or whoever who are then able to tweet out what his reflections are on, on key subjects at the moment as well as generally being a sort of lightning rod for Western interest in, in Russian domestic politics and criticisms of Putin. There was recently the Oscar winning documentary about him which drew again more attention to him as a figure and to Russia specifically. So he is unsurprisingly undergoing extreme um, imprisonment measures at the moment and will of course be touching on this whenever we hear any updates. So that's the sort of political realm at the moment, David. I'm sure that next week there'll be some interesting diplomatic ones too, but I think that these are the most interesting ones, mainly around the economic and, and, and sort of political suppression spheres today. Thank you very much, Francis. Dom, can I come to you just for your final thoughts? What will you be looking at? If, if possible, do you sort of sum up what, what you're thinking about these? We talked a lot about the leaks, the Pentagon leaks earlier today. Would you just sum up your thinking on them at the moment and then give a sense as to what you're looking at over the next few days? Yeah, I mean, it's all marvellous tittle-tattle. I don't mean to demean the information here because none of this should have come out into the into the public domain if it if it is all genuine it probably is these are protectively marked documents allegedly prepared for the the u.s joint chiefs of staff so i mean a lot of thought has gone into that i spoke yesterday about how intelligence about is produced and the caveats that go into it but these these would be the most considered the the, the best assessed information that could be presented to the joint chiefs. so you know it is it is serious stuff Having said that, as I said earlier on, I mean, look at the equities that have been burned. South Korea, a, a conversation allegedly about whether or not they should supply weapons to Ukraine via Poland. I mean, yeah, you, you have the conversation out in the public, but you know, that's not that's not a killer blow. That the US is is monitoring the UN and up to and including the UN Secretary General. Again, don't think that's news really. So it, it is a huge amount of colour, and it's embarrassing, and the 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 ability for it to to get out is um is regrettable and there'll be huge questions to be asked about how that how that can happen but i'm still waiting to see something that that fundamentally 
undermines the US security establishment or, or trust in allies. I think I think allies will behind closed doors be be looking at each other here and looking to the US and saying, well, hey, fellow, you know, it's your turn. <laughs> it's happened to all of us. It's going to happen again. There's nothing at the moment I see to fundamentally impact relations. There's no ambassadors been recalled from certain countries. There's been no chatter in the press. I know Mr. Macron has been in China and that's that sort of diverted a large part of that of China and, and, and France's commentary at the moment. But no one's really made a barbed comment. No one's pressed Joe Biden on his on his visit to Northern Ireland and, and the Republic of Ireland. I mean, it's all sort of it's out there and it's interesting and we're going to talk about it repeatedly, correctly so but I just, I just, well, I just come back and I just wonder if all this is, all this is a little bit of gold, just hiding, hiding the, um, hiding the bit that, that they really want Russia to to pay attention to. And I don't think this was planned by Russia. They seem to have been caught on the on the hop, the same as everybody else. The fact that they they've grabbed one small element of this, the, the casualty figures, and then you know in a fairly fairly amateurish way tried to doctor those and put that out on certain telegram channels which will be amplified they're fine go for it lads they were caught on the hop as much as anyone else so i i just we just got to get it into perspective it shouldn't have happened but i can't see any any fundamental damage to the external international support for ukraine at the moment from this thank you very much dom nichols francis stanley would you like the very final words Thanks, David. I touched earlier on the strategy for rebuilding Ukraine after the war is over. Now, historically, those countries who've survived calamities have a remarkable ability to adapt and rebuild. And the Ukrainians have, of course, shown themselves more than capable of that in the last year or so. But I just wanted to, I suppose, underline the fact that there is a big difference between a wound healing and a lingering scar. I recall there was a study of, I think it was about 20,000 people from over a dozen countries who survived World War II. And I think it was around 3% were more likely to have diabetes as adults and 6% more likely to suffer depression. Those most sound like quite low figures, but that's before you even begin to feed in the impact of war on children, on economics, which of course costs lives. Of course, in Ukraine at the moment, as we analysed a month or so ago, there have been thousands of children who have witnessed unspeakable horrors, who've had their education profoundly disrupted. These are all things that take generations to combat and to fully get over. It leaves an indelible mark. And we've received several pieces of correspondence from listeners recently describing the imprint that war modern ones, more historic ones, have left on family members, psychological scars that were buried for decades. And so I just think it is important to remember that, that rebuilding a country physically, in terms of buildings, in terms of lost economic might, as it were, is one thing. But rebuilding a society and rebuilding a human mind is quite another, and something that is a very much a long-term project. And that's a really a key thing here, is that I still think there are some people who think that you know, the war in Ukraine will end, the country will rebuild, and we can move on with this. And, and hopefully the, the world can perhaps return to some of the stability that, that we saw. I say stability in the loosest possible sense, given the war started in 2014, but I digress. That, that some sort of stability that we were used to, say, in the 1990s. But I think you know, that actually the most important thing to remember is that this is going to take years and years and years. To, to resolve in a meaningful way. And this assumes, of course, that, that Ukraine wins the war and gets the, the absolute victory that, that it is fighting for. And, and 
the West has to be aware of that, you know, in terms of the, 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 the long-term investment that's going to be required and, of course, the enormous challenges that are being posed for Ukraine recovering from this devastating war. So that's my final thought, David. I'm off now for the next few days, but I'll be back next week and we'll be talking, I'm sure, about some more interesting developments in, in this space. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine The Latest as soon as it is released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, Claire Hubble. <laughs>